0: This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. This coming Friday, we'll commemorate the 42nd anniversary of the martyrdom of Blessed Stanley Rother. It was in the early morning hours of the 28th of July, 1981, that Blessed Stanley was killed in his rectory in the parish of Santiago Atitlan in the highlands of Guatemala. His martyrdom capped off his 13 years of priestly service to the people of the parish there and his example of selfless service has proved to be an inspiration to us all. There are a number of activities that are taking place as part of this week of commemoration and celebration, activities we want everyone to note and to be a part of. And the first is all the more important because it's the normal and the expected. All during the week of July 24th to July 28th, there will be Mass at the Shrine at 1215, our regular Mass time, Everybody is invited to come and enjoy the fruit of this celebration as we focus on the sacrifice and holiness of Blessed Stanley during all this week. Mass is offered every day, and usually we have a nice crowd. This week especially, we will continue to focus on the blessing of the life of Father Stan Rother and his gift to the Church and to the people of Guatemala. Of course, Mass is followed by exposition. This continues until the Divine Mercy Chaplet at 3 o'clock, and then is followed by benediction. These devotions are especially poignant given that we are commemorating Father Rother's priestly commitment and sacrificial ministry. Spending time meditating on his life of virtue and sacrifice is a blessing all its own. On Tuesday night, the 25th of July, there will be an evening prayer at the shrine in Spanish. The celebrant and homilist will be Father Cristobal de Loera, pastor of Woodward. He has a special devotion to the life and example of Blessed Stanley and attributes his vocational call to, to the example of Father Stan. Everybody's invited to be a part of this prayer. No Spanish language test required to attend and to participate. It'll be at 7 p.m. On the following evening, Wednesday, July the 26th, there'll be evening prayer in English. It'll also begin at uh, seven o'clock. Everybody's invited. On Friday, the 28th of July, there'll be regular mass at 1215 in the chapel and at 7 p.m., there'll be mass celebrated in the church. The Mass will be bilingual, English and Spanish. Everybody's invited to come and celebrate the remarkable life and martyrdom of Blessed Stanley Rother and celebrate the first anniversary of his feast day in the Shrine Church. We'll be will offer Mass for the intention of priests everywhere, as well as for a continual increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life. Finally, on Saturday morning, we'll have a celebration for the whole family. Everybody's invited to come and bring a picnic. We'll begin at 9 a.m., have games and a bouncy house for the kids. Everybody's invited to enjoy the cool air, a chance to be outside for a while, the opportunity to make it to our Tepeyac Hill. We'll pray the rosary there as well as invite all of the kids to enjoy themselves, both in their play and their prayers. Our time together will go until 1230. At 1215, we'll have our regular daily mass in the chapel. Of course, the church, the chapel, the museum, and the gift shop will all be open during these times. As we come to the anniversary, it's important for all of us to focus on the aspects of Blessed Stanley's life we might not take time to notice. Certainly, we want everyone to be aware of the extraordinary nature of his life and witness, which is why we have a shrine dedicated to his life and work and his martyrdom. In the museum at the shrine, there's a catalog of the notable elements of his life and raising that made him a role model for every person who desires to follow Christ and to be a witness to the goodness of the Lord. And in Maria Scaparlanda's book, The Shepherd Who Did Not Run, we're able to get a sense of the details of his life, especially of the time he spent in Guatemala, leading up to his last years in the parish there and his eventual martyrdom. But there are a few details we might not take in, details that would be fruitful for us to pay attention to as we contemplate what his example might mean for us in our lives of service to the Lord. After all, we're all called to be disciples, to orient our lives to serve the Lord of life, Looking at what one person did in his life is an open invitation to look at what we're doing in our lives and see if there might be an an element or an aspect we haven't considered or thought about before. That's what the life of a martyr is and why the church sets their example aside and honors it so thoroughly, so that it becomes an example to all of us of what God invites each of us to do and what such an investigation might look like for us. The first of these is part of the environment of Stanley's service in Guatemala. With all the talk of what went on there and the the drama of Stan's sacrifice, we tend to gloss over this amazing moment in the history of the church of the United States that brought Oklahoma down to the highlands of this Central American country and and placed the Oklahoma priest there who staffed the mission from 1965 to 2001. It's a story we've simply taken for granted, and it comes from the amazing history of the Catholic Church in the United States in the late 1940s to the early 1960s. This was a time in which Catholics often cite as the old church when they talk about the changes brought about by Vatican II and what they remember from when the church was different all those years ago. And it was an amazing place in Oklahoma, as well as in much of the country. Catholics were prospering as they never had before. The church was growing everywhere, The seminaries and convents were full, mostly, and the energy of the church was brimming over with ideas. It was, in many respects, a golden time. And everybody should celebrate that time. It was a terrific moment in the life of the church. When I was in the seminary, I used to walk down the hallway of the administration building and look at the pictures they had there of the men who had graduated and were ordained from the previous classes. In my seminary, this collection of graduating classes went back to the 1880s seeing their serious faces stare out from their little patch of history was always inspirational to me. It was all the more inspirational to see the very large classes that were graduated in those halcyon years of the 1950s. What may have been a class of, say, 15 students in the 1920s had become become a class of 60 students in 1955, for example. Things were busting out all over then. When I used to visit in Washington D.C. when I was the President of the National Federation of Priest Councils, our meetings were almost always in the area near the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. This shrine is, itself, just across the street from Catholic University. And because it is the university setting for for D.C., the campus there is surrounded by numerous buildings put up by a variety of religious orders to be the places where their students could come and live and study and take advantage of all the university there could offer. When I was visiting in the late 1990s, most of these buildings had become a shell of their former selves. It had been many years since they had been full of young seminarians and religious brothers who were being formed into the religious priests of their various orders. What had been a place for a 100 students was lucky to have 10 at that time. So when we look back and note all of the energy and prosperity of that time, the 50s were remarkable. We'd just come out of, the, of World War II. Unlike most of the industrial powers of the world, every factory and farm was intact following the fighting, which had taken place other places. We possessed most of the world's gold reserve, most of its manufacturing capacity, most of the world's disposable income, and we had a sense of destiny and purpose that every American internalized. Without a doubt, we were on top of the world. and This was just as true in the church as in any other aspect of national life at the time. We often forget that fact. The church was participating in a national revival as well as an ecclesial one. Everything was moving in our direction and the future was looking up for us. And this was just as true in the life of Stan Rother as he graduated from high school in 1953 as it was for any of the other young men who crossed the thresholds of the seminaries throughout the U.S. at the time. Farms and factories, churches and convents, seminaries and parishes, were prospering in ways no one had seen before. It was an amazing time. It was also a very pious and spiritual time. General religious practice was common all over the country, in Protestant as well as in Catholic settings. Catholic parishes were full and were being built in record numbers in the new suburbs being established at that time in cities all over the country. It was mostly the same with Protestant churches. We were entering a whole new way of living and working a new kind of life, and with it, a whole different kind of church life, and it was working. Looking back at this heady time from our times today, we need to keep a couple of things in mind. When all this was happening, it was all new and unknown. No one knew this could happen, and most people weren't prepared for it. The baby boom taking place after the war caught most people by surprise, as well as the attendant cultural focus on youth and the future. Just as a curiosity, the dictionaries of the day did not have the word teenage in them. It wasn't recognized as a word yet. And most of the country was not prepared for the growth in the general prosperity of the society. Times previous to this had looked much less rosy and not nearly so positive. The church in the U.S. had not experienced what the 50s looked like when they were happening. What was going on during those years was as odd to the old-timers as those days now seem odd to us, looking back over our shoulders at them from our perspective. I'll give you one example, one we should keep in mind. When Bishop Kelly died, who had been bishop for 23 years in the state of Oklahoma, from 1924 to 1948, there were 14 seminarians for the entire state of Oklahoma enrolled in the seminary. When Bishop McGinnis took over, the numbers began to boom in the late 40s until in the latter part of the 50s, there were 150 seminarians. The 50s weren't the norm. They were the exception. We should remember that. But such an exception allowed the church in the U.S. to begin thinking of itself in a different way. It was growing, it was successful, and it was prosperous. All those things together allowed it to become a new kind of resource to the international church. For almost 200 years, the U.S. had been receiving priests and support from all over the Catholic world. Now, at this moment of inflection, it was poised to provide help to churches all over the world. And the Vatican was quick to pick up on this potential. In the early 1960s, the Pope asked the church in North America to come to the aid of the church south of the border. The bishops and people in this great swath of Catholic life among the inheritors of the Iberian evangelization of the 16th century were in need of help. The prosperity and manpower of the American church could be a great resource to the effort to help sustain the church in Latin America. History had not been so kind to many of the countries there. They had all undergone revolutions in the 19th century. These had almost all cut off the sources of their priests and the support from their home countries. Most of the areas of Latin America had spent a century sorting out the difficulties of governance and organization, only to be caught up in the revolutionary fervors of the 20th century. And in the wake of these disturbances, it had proven difficult for the church to function. Ironically, many of the governments of these countries were overtly anti-clerical and anti-Catholic, which made it all the harder for the Catholic Church to function. Mexico, for example, suffered from revolution and counter-revolution for decades, beginning in 1910, that laid the country waste. As late as 1948... There were still entire states in the country of Mexico that had not one priest in them. And this was an image of many parts of Latin America. The U.S., with its influx of priests and sisters and money and energy, was all ready to begin thinking about what it could do to redress some of the imbalances. After all, we are one America geographically. It was thought we could become one America ecclesially as well. At That, at least, was the hope. And Oklahoma responded, as many other states and dioceses did. Father Ramon Carlin was instrumental in channeling the energy in the state toward Guatemala. After working with the coordinators among the American bishops who were organizing to direct the energies and interests of the many dioceses in the country to Latin America, Father Carlin and Bishop Victor Reed and Father Ernest Fluchet located the parish of Santiago Atitlan in Guatemala as the focus of Oklahoma's energy in this effort. Other states and other dioceses had other places and responsibilities, from Mexico to Argentina. It was a remarkable effort. Guatemala had suffered throughout its history after its revolution in 1821 and its separation from Mexico in 1823. By the middle of the 20th century, it had not yet produced a sense of national identity sufficient to supply its churches. Santiago, a village whose Catholic church had been built in 1597, had been without a resident pastor for more than a hundred years when the Oklahoma contingent arrived there with all of the conviction and force that can-do Yankees could have. They arrived to take over the parish and bring it into the life and energy of the 20th century and to begin to mold it into the careful Catholic presence that was its heritage. The Oklahoma effort was part of the gigantic national effort poured out from the U.S. during those years. It was an important part of the life of the Oklahoma church. This move to provide missionaries was a new part of the history of the church here. Previous to this date in 1965, Oklahoma was the place of mission. My first pastor, for example, when I was ordained in 1981, had come to Oklahoma because it was a place for missionaries. He wanted his priesthood to be a missionary priesthood. The wide open spaces and the tiny Catholic population and limited resources available Uh, made the church in Oklahoma uh, a tough place for the people here. But that began to change with the rising cultural tide in the 50s, and in what seemed like a blink of an eye, Oklahoma was sending missionaries out to the world, not just receiving them. The excitement was not just because we had adopted a small place along the largest lake in Central America. It was that because of our choice to bring the gospel to the people of Santiago Atitlan we were moved into a whole new category of church life. Blessed Stanley Rother was part of this energy. He was recruited by Father Carlin to come to Guatemala and to become a part of the mission project there. There was palpable excitement among the clergy, and Stan was being asked to become part of the team of those who were at the Spears point when it came to the incisive changes in the life of the church. While we make a great deal of the things Father Rother Rother wasn't good at, and not able to get done compared to other priests, he was caught up in one of the most important and cutting-edge activities in the history of the Church of Oklahoma when he took his place as a missionary in Guatemala. The mission, as all missions do, went through hard times, of course. Those who went there found out their work was much harder and more complicated than they had imagined. Questions about language and culture and expectations were difficult to answer and difficult to talk about. Preaching the liberating message of Jesus is always mixed in with the motives and abilities of the ones doing the preaching, since the preacher always preaches himself as he's preaching Christ. In the face of the grinding poverty, the difficult challenges, the foreignness of the language, and the sheer tough life there, not all who went stayed. By the mid-1970s, most of the staff of the mission had gone, and Stan was left pretty much on his own. Ironically, this was when his own missionary contributions blossomed. Stan began to encounter the truth every missionary effort has discovered no matter when or in what circumstances the mission um, was founded, and that was this. The missionaries went to preach Christ to the people there, and when they got there, they found him already there. Of course, the church was established in Guatemala in the 16th century had been, and had been functioning continually for all those years. But the proclamation of Christ is a challenge in every generation, made all the more challenging in the face of the absence of clergy and the crippling of the church, the intentional crippling of the church there by its government. The Oklahomans figured they would bring the riches of their experience and the bounty of their faith to what was missing in this forgotten place, in this small, distressed country, and reanimate the life of Christ there. But what they found was that Christ was already there, already at work among the people, already a real and true presence in their hearts. And I can testify that such a discovery is something almost all of us who have visited Santiago have found. The power of the faith and its expression there in that village, most notable for its poverty and difficulty and distance, can move even the most jaded American heart. Once, when I was visiting Father McSherry there, Father Rother's successor, he asked me to celebrate the Easter Vigil Mass. We celebrated at the parish church above the shoreline of the lake by the light of the full moon on Holy Saturday night, 1998. After everything was over and we processed out of the church to a Spanish version of As the Saints Go Marching In, one of the tourists there from Guatemala City stopped me as I walked the door out onto the porch and said, I thought I had lost God in my life. Now I know I've found him. The only thing I could say because I knew exactly what she meant was you've come to the right place. So when we think of the life and the ministry of Blessed Stan Rother, we should pause and think of this great moment in the life of the Church of Oklahoma and of the United States. It was a moment in which many dioceses were transformed, in which many places were able to mark a change in their focus and their ministry. They were able to move outside of their interior concerns and face the wider world, bringing the power of the gospel to a waiting and hungry world while finding the power of the gospel at work in new ways in the places they had hardly imagined. In fact, we might take this chance to think of our own situation. It is integral to the life of the church that we were all mission-focused. Without a goal outside of ourselves and our own needs, without a vision that includes the wider world and its needs, we're not able to prosper. For many places in the U.S. who were faced with difficulties as they moved through the 70s and 80s into the 90s and the 2000s, the temptation has been to look inward, to become preoccupied with the internal problems and local challenges. When this happens, all notion of what the church is and is for begins to drop away. Rather than being propelled into ministry and being filled with the capacity to share what we have received, we become preoccupied with what we don't have yet and what we still lack now. Everything changes when we don't look outward. Now might be a time in which we could all ask ourselves the important question, where is our Guatemala today? In 1983, a group of eight priests went from Oklahoma to Santiago Atitlan to commemorate the second anniversary of Father Rother's murder. On the night before the celebration in the village, we were hosted by the Bishop of the Diocese and the faculty of the seminary in Solola, the regional capital there. During dinner, one of the professors stood up and expressed his thanks at our presence there. It's good for you to be here on this important date, he said. And it's good that you've given your best to Guatemala, and we're grateful. But remember, he said, you need Guatemala more than Guatemala needs you. You need the mission more than the mission needs you. I think he was right. So pause for a moment, look inside and think. Where is our Guatemala now? Back in just a moment. To our final segment, Faith in Verse, we have a poem today called It's July. The days when hot are not defined just by the thermometer. There are the real marks of such time from the calendar. We've all known a July or two alone when it was not sizzling hot, could note a day in summer's sway, but apart from summer's lot. Or know the time when frost should rhyme the pool's edge white, but was really hot, nearly fraught by too much heat and light. The hand of God, in creation's job, put the seasons firm set, so there'd be no quality cons- uncertain of what we would expect. Thus, no supplicating or berating the time to produce results. Ancient man could turn to scan the heavens and thereupon consult, with no worry or fear that warm was dear and cold was everywhere, so could live free and thereby see God's goodness in the world in here. Don't worry about temps, they're but blowing tents, they move easily. Worry more about the store of meaning we choose to discount so feasibly. That's, it's July. I urge everybody who has a chance to come to one of the extraordinary celebrations that we have this coming week. Certainly the mass that we will do on uh, Friday night will be the opportunity to celebrate the anniversary. And I think especially important because it'll be the first time we're able to do that in the Shrine Church. So that is mass that begins at seven o'clock. It will be bilingual, but don't worry, uh, making it bilingual, make it accessible to everyone. So uh, seven o'clock this coming Friday. Hope to see you there. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.